There are many reasons that we come to practice the Dhamma. And there are many ways of uh, monitoring our practice and many ways of understanding how we uh, progress in practice. But there's one teaching of the Buddha that holds all of the other teachings within it. And even though the Buddha was born, raised, and practiced and taught in India, when the teachings of the Buddha traveled to Tibet and China, Korea and Southeast Asia, Japan, and now to the West, while the form and the practice and the rituals of the Buddha's teachings or Dadama change and look quite different. There's this one teaching that is the foundation upon which all the other teachings in every tradition rest. And this is a teaching on the Buddha's realization of the truth, which he articulated in his first discourse when he spoke to the five ascetics that had practiced with him and he shared with them his realization. It is important for us to understand what the Buddha taught in order to practice effectively and to understand the uh, profundity, the significance, and the goal, if you will, of practice. And while each one of us might be quite satisfied just to have a good sitting, there is a greater goal. And even though it may sometimes seem to be far beyond our reach, or possible only for Buddhas and those who lived at the time of the Buddha, I want to assure you that the teachings of the Buddha are alive and practiced and realized in this day and age. And there are many among us who have uh, understood profoundly and realized to a significant degree what the Buddha realized. It is not beyond our reach to aspire and to make significant progress on the path. So what are the Four Noble Truths? It is the Buddha's way of, of speaking about that which is necessary to know in order to practice effectively to realize the goal of liberation. Now the Buddha, it is said, could know anything that he turned his mind to. Such a powerful, concentrated, collected, and uh, wise mind. And the Buddha was asked many, many questions about all kinds of esoteric, philosophical, metaphysical uh, questions. 
But he often refused to answer them, saying that it just wasn't useful, it just wasn't beneficial, it didn't lead to the end of suffering. To know them or not didn't change one's condition or understanding of suffering and the end of suffering one bit. And so he just refused to answer them. But instead he said, I teach one thing and one thing only. I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. When I first started practicing the Dhamma 30-some years ago, I heard the first noble truth presented as life is suffering. Well, I was 25 and I was full of 25-year-old hormones and ambition and uh, had my whole life except the first 25 years ahead of me and suffering was far, far from my mind. I went to my first retreat and as I've mentioned, it was pure accident. Set up back, leaned against the piano. Every sitting was in excruciating agony. I didn't know what I was doing there half the time. I was anxious to get out of there and get back to my other habits. But suffering? I wasn't suffering. In my mind, when I heard the word suffering, it was, if I acknowledged that I was suffering, to me it meant I was a failure. And I didn't want to be a failure at 25. And so I didn't get it. It wasn't until, you know, 10 years later, after 10 years of doing retreats here, that I went to Asia and I heard one of Saito Upandita's translators translate dukkha as the oppressive nature of conditions. Oh, that's pretty safe. <laughs> I could get that. It's like, yeah, conditions are pretty oppressive sometimes. You know, of course I was 35 by then. And uh, <laughs> I really understood, so I thought. Oh, and with that, I began to open to what the Buddha was pointing to when he started to his teaching by talking about dukkha. It is not easy to open to the full range of the meaning of dukkha, let alone the experience of dukkha, because it is complex. And there's no single word in English that conveys the depth of meaning that the word dukkha conveys. <clears throat> the first area of meaning of the word dukkha is pain. Painful physical experience. Backache, headache, toothache, feeling hungry, feeling sleepy, feeling your finger get jammed in the door. When you're sick, the body feels painful in its own way. And as we grow older, there are a whole host of new physical dukkhas to, to become more aware of. It also means 
mental dukkha or emotional dukkha, emotional pain. And this is the very ordinary feeling lonely, feeling anxious, fretful, frustrated, disappointed, feeling alienated, isolated, feeling betrayed, jealous, angry, wanting what you can't have, having what you don't want. Uh, very obvious uh, physical and mental or emotional pain is called dukkha dukkha. And we all, we all experience that. Maybe not continuously, but there's a pretty healthy stream of it in our life, as you may have noticed today. It's very difficult for the body to be so comfortable that it's satisfying to stay there. And so too with the mind. It's very challenging to consider the activity of the mind as being satisfactory. It's really, it's a challenge. And so if it's not okay, then it's dukkha. There's a second meaning of the word dukkha, and it relies on or it rests on the fact that everything changes. And because everything changes, every physical thing, every mental thing, every environmental thing, because it changes unpredictably, it is an unreliable foundation for happiness. It is unstable. It's unreliable. This means that our bodies, our minds, our relationships, our government, our environment, our finances, our car, our house, our pet, our kids, our partners, they all change quickly and often unpredictably in directions that we don't choose. And though we do derive great happiness and great concern, we never know. It is a source of instability in our life, unreliability in our life. And the happiness that we experience in life dependent on these unreliable conditions, that happiness is fragile. It can be taken away from us in a split second. And we know how quickly things change. Accidents occur, doctor's visits come out otherwise than uh, good. Any one of us can go to our next annual exam and get a diagnosis that is going to change your life. And, you know, we, we really can't do anything about that. This is the way it is. And yet, we live our lives trying to keep that understanding out of sight. Just kind of 
keep patching up all those uh, conditions that seem to support security and stability and happiness in our life, hoping that we keep one step ahead of the next unpredictable change. But no matter how well we construct our life and the conditions of it, this knowledge that everything changes is just on the periphery of our vision. And so we're anxious, we're insecure, we feel fragile, we feel vulnerable, we feel like, I just can't get it together. Well, it's not that we can't get it together. Nobody can get it together. There's no one who is uh, free of this level of insecurity. No matter how young, healthy, how many vitamins they take, or how much exercise they do, or how much money they have, or how new their computer, it just, it just doesn't... We're all vulnerable. It's not your fault, really, that you feel insecure. Don't take it personal. But because we personalize our suffering, we miss the significance, the profundity of what the Buddha was pointing to, that this is the way it is for everyone in any condition. When they rely upon changeable things for their happiness. There's a third meaning or third area of meaning of the word dukkha. And there's two, there's a macro view and a micro view. This is called sankhara dukkha, the defects of uh, samsara, really. So the macro view is we're born and our parents or other primary caregivers are doing the best they can, care for us. They feed us, they bathe us, they educate us, they love us, they coo us, they change our diapers. They do everything they can to keep us happy because if we're not happy, they're not happy. And as soon as they can, they enlist the support of any siblings, peers, relatives, <laughs> friends, anybody that will help them care for you, care for us, each one of us. And in time, they pass you off to uh, the public education or private education school teachers and others who just are left with the job of educating you, loving you, training you, controlling you, fixing you, <laughs> adjusting you, helping you adjust to them. And after some number of years, we gradually get set adrift and we, at some point in our early teenage years, realize we're on our own. Now we have to take care of ourselves. And every day we have this body. We wake up and this body comes with us. Hello, take care of me today. Bathe, groom, dress, feed, eliminate, 
prettify, doctify, whatever you do to the body, you have to do every day just to keep it happy. Because you know, if you don't feed and you don't eat, you don't poop, you don't clean, you don't groom, you don't get dressed, you don't keep warm, you really suffer. The body really doesn't like that. And you'll suffer. And so you have to take care of it. And you can't get anybody to do it for you. You have to take care of this body. But the body is the easy part. You have this mind. Now the mind, as we have discovered today, needs constant attention. It needs to be entertained, distracted, uh, satisfied, cajoled, teased, consoled, uh, soothed to be happy, or else it'll get impatient, frustrated, disappointed, uh, unmet expectations, desiring what it can't have, having to put up with what it doesn't like. Why, it would be just like being on a retreat. <laughs> and you have to do that every waking hour of the day. Every day. And you have to do that for, you have to take care of this body and this mind for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, maybe eight decades. At the end of which, what happens? The whole investment of all your time, <laughs> energy, finances, knowledge, love, care, and attention goes in a box and it goes in a hole in the ground forever. Some would say, bad investment. <laughs> and if all you're doing is carrying this body and mind to the grave as comfortably as you can, you might be wasting your time. Seeking pleasure only, comfort only for this body and mind, well, let me just say, it's not a goal worthy of your effort. There is so much more that can be done with this precious human birth to begin to understand this suffering, this dukkha. The dukkha dukkha, the physical, mental, emotional pain, the insecurity, the vulnerability, the oppressive nature of conditions. Well, that's the macro view. The micro view we see incessantly when we look carefully with awareness. We have these eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and we have this mind, considered in the Buddhist understanding as the sixth sense, sixth sense door. These six sense doors are being stimulated constantly. They're just on call all the time. And while you can close your eyes, you can't stop seeing. You can try to close your ears and crickets will crick all day long and you got to hear it. And your body, there's no way you can stop feeling the sensations of the body. And we know the mind already. Can you say to your mind, please stop, please quiet down, shut up. <laughs> it's, we, it's oppressive. If you really can open to, 
your experience here, it is oppressive to have to, de to have to bear it. Why is it so difficult to acknowledge that? Well, what's the other option? <laughs> I mean, if you don't bear it, then what, what's the other option? It's not apparent that there's any other option but put up with it as best you can. And so quite naturally, we would think, keep it happy. As long as it's pleasant sights, pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, pleasant touch, pleasant thoughts, well, at least we forget that it's just oppressive. It's hard. It's very difficult to open to the truth of dukkha, to even hear it and understand it, and to see it deeply in our life, and to take it in as this is the way it is, really um, is challenging. It's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated and to be understood. Now we know that if you don't look carefully, you won't see it. Our lives are often a tre endless treadmill seeking for distraction from this understanding. And our culture as a whole doesn't really offer an alternative. And so we look around for some happiness in our life, and some of us end up looking in this direction. And the instruction is, well, sit down, take a look. And it's pretty clear, pretty quick, that things are not as they first appear. It's not so satisfying. It's not so pleasant. It's not so rewarding to kind of take care of this body and mind. But we see that because we're investigating, we're looking carefully, we're sitting still, paying attention, and it's obvious that this is not very satisfactory. And so we look around and we say, well, if it's not satisfactory for me, could it be satisfactory for them? And when we see our own dukkha, when we see what looks like my dukkha, this body, this mind, we know every other being experiences the same thing. It's not like men have dukkha and women don't. It's not like the young have dukkha and elderly, el more elderly people don't. It's not like monks don't have dukkha and lay people do. It's the wealthy, they have their dukkha. The poor, they obviously have their dukkha. Can we even imagine anyone who doesn't experience physical, mental pain, insecurity, vulnerability, and the oppressiveness of just having to keep it all going as best you can? It's clear. In this realm of, in this human realm, it's something that we're all going to have to bear for the duration. 
Now, I grew up here in New England during the 50s. And, you know, typical middle class working family. And, uh, you know, my mother and father were of the training that if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And so in our a household with an alcoholic parent, there was no dukkha spoken of. And we weren't really encouraged and we weren't really allowed. It wasn't even a topic. It was in the closet, well out of sight, and each one bore it as best they could. I am so grateful for the Dharma teachers I've had who have had the courage to share this teaching with me, that there is this condition of dukkha, and have brought dukkha out of the closet so I can see it, and so I can investigate my life to see it and to really come to understand, because through understanding, through seeing the truth of dukkha, and through understanding it, you can then do something about it. But until we see it, we're on the treadmill to exhaustion. Sometimes we get this idea that this retreat and all this sitting is really too much. Why should I sit here and just make myself miserable with all this pain and frustration and disappointment? I could be, I could be having fun somewhere. I mean, hasn't that thought crossed your mind? I mean, hello. It's not, I'm not, I'm not the only one that thinks like that. But you know, the sitting doesn't cause the dukkha. The looking doesn't cause the dukkha. The silence doesn't cause the dukkha. The dukkha is in the mind. It's in the body. And it's by looking that we see it. You don't look, you don't see. In fact, being on a retreat, taking the opportunity to really look deeply into the body, into the mind, is one of the most compassionate things you can do for yourself. Even though it is apparently very painful, physically, mentally, emotionally, very painful. And compassion is usually the alleviation of pain, the alleviation of suffering. Well, it is the entry point for the relief of suffering. Because when you see that you're suffering, then you'll do something about it. So the Buddha saw this, or the Bodhisattva saw this, and wondered why. Wouldn't you? Why, why does it have to be this way? Why do, why do I have to suffer? Why do I have to bear with this ugh, stuff, this oppressive conditions? And when the Bodhisattva looked, he saw that it is craving 
that is the cause of dukkha. Craving in the form of attachment, wanting, yearning, being identified with uh, experience, owning experience, personalizing it. This, the Buddha said, is the cause of dukkha. Well, think with me for a minute. I used to have this assumption that if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that make sense? You know, if you get what you want, what is, it, what is it you want? Get what you want, then you'd be happy. I mean, we've, we've lived with that assumption, acted on that assumption for a long time. And we have pursued and gotten a lot of what we wanted. Happy yet? Well, momentarily. But when you look more deeply, you realize all that we have acquired, all that we have experienced, all that we've gained, still doesn't satisfy us. Huh. And it doesn't take too much extrapolation to see that nothing will. Whatever we can acquire is vulnerable to change. But the Buddha said, we seek pleasant experiences. Well, that's pretty obvious. He also said we seek continued existence. Continued existence meaning we haven't got enough yet. And so today, while you were experiencing the fruit of your craving from last week, you know, the craving to be here on retreat, while you now are experiencing the fruit of your prior craving, we're making plans for future happiness. Can't quite be satisfied with this. We're already making plans for the next thing that will do the trick for us. And when you're experiencing that, that you've then acquired, you'll be laying down tracks for another future. And the one common ingredient in all this futuring that each one of us does is there's me. I'm not making plans for you. <laughs> I'm making plans for me. And me and mine. And it's a universal habit. We're just looking for more reinforcement for this sense of ourself. And it just goes on and on and on. Well, the Buddha said sometimes we get really fed up with it and we crave for the end of it. It's like, give me a break. I wish it was over. I want to retire from this treadmill. You know, it's like you're sitting and you've got knee pain, back pain, and your mind is restless and you can't be mindful, you can't, and it's still 44 minutes till the bell rings. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's like, let me out of here. What have I got to do to get? And so we space out, we go numb, we fall asleep, we, we do anything except be there with it. This craving is pernicious. It is just relentless. 
in our minds. Just looking for, scheming, strategizing, trying to find a way to be happy. And whatever we rely on, whether it's people, institutions, things, money, power, fame, recognition, well, we know they too are all fragile, changeable, unreliable, and whatever happiness is built upon them is unstable. If it's valuable, whatever it is you seek for your happiness is valuable, well, you have to earn the money for it, and you have to insure it, and if it's worth too much, the government will take their share, and it's vulnerable to loss or being stolen. If it's alive, a, a human being, a pet, or whatever, well, we know that they are liable to unpredictable change. If it is digital, it's outdated in six months. If it's metal, it rusts. It's like, what? what? What really can we rely on and crave and hold on to for this security? It's not clear that there's anything. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it should. You know? And what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we had imagined. So, taking that, they then went on to study the effects of winning the lottery on people. And they found that one year after winning the lottery, lottery winners' baseline happiness was unchanged. Now, you might think, God, if I won the lottery, I'd be happy. Yeah, you pay off your bill, you, you finally get to own your house and whatnot, you get a new car and send your kids to college or you know, finish off your college loans, whatever. But the baseline happiness, unchanged. They also found that those who suffer uh, catastrophic illness or accidents, one year after stabilizing or healing from that accident, baseline happiness, no different than the day before it happened. Well, the only conclusion we can draw is we don't know what will make us happy. And our idea of happiness is independent of conditions. It's clear that happiness is not to be found out there. But it's to be found in our relationship to all of the conditions of our life, our mind how the mind is relating to whatever it is in life that we come in contact with. It is said that the first noble truth is to be investigated. We really need to look carefully in order to discover dukkha and understand it. It is said that the second noble truth, craving, is to be abandoned, to be let go. And in some ways we can understand that second noble truth is saying the end of dukkha comes from letting go. 
Well, the Buddha developed this idea or realized this understanding in the third, and articulated it in the Third Noble Truth, that the end of dukkha is possible. And often when we hear the Third Noble Truth or we hear about the Third Noble Truth, it's talked about in pretty lofty and far away terms. You know, it's like enlightenment, liberation, nibbana. It's like, you know, what about my knee pain? <laughs> and while it is true that the Buddha was pointing to a very noble realization of the end of dukkha, there's a more immediate experience of the end of dukkha that we have access to here, now, today. So I want to spend some time identifying the different ways that our Dharma practice shows us the end of dukkha. You may have noticed that in spite of your best intentions today to be mindful, the mind has a habit of wandering off into la-la land. And try as you might, it's very difficult to stop the mind from doing that. However, as soon as you notice the mind has wandered, whatever it is you've been doing, whatever it is you've been caught up in, whatever story, fantasy, problem, whatever, as soon as you become aware of it, it stops, just like that. The anxiety, the, the solving the problem, the creating the future, fixing the past, you know, rehearsing some, you know, something that you got to perform. It's like, it's like, as soon as it, as soon as you become aware of it, that anxiety, that grasping, that worry stops. Now, when I first started practice. I'd been a few years out of college, and when I was in college, I studied engineering. And this was back in the late 70s when we didn't have handheld computers. We did all of our mathematical calculations on a slide rule, and there was a lot of math. There was just a lot of advanced math courses. And so I'd spent years doing complex mathematics in my head. So I had a habit of really churning out numbers, churning out formulas, solving mathematical problems. So when I went on my retreat, my first retreat, sit down, pay attention to breath, my mind wanders off. Where does my, my mind wander to? Complex mathematical calculations. And I'd, I'd come to finding myself multiplying out, you know, four and five digit numbers in my head, just going, and I'd say, do I need to be doing this now? And of course, I didn't. And I could just let it go. Our minds are conditioned into habit. And that's what it does when it feels like it has some discretionary time. <laughs> and unless you keep on top of it and keep track of it, you'll be just digging a deeper rut of habit and the mind will just kind of 
go down the same old track over and over and over again. But as soon as you become aware of it, it stops. And in that moment, the split second after that habit stops, what happens? You know, there's a moment of relief. The mind lets go, and it hasn't picked up anything else yet. Relief. <sighs> Thank goodness for mindfulness. I'd still be calculating those numbers. I mean, it's like, whew. But it doesn't take long before the mind picks up something else. And it keeps going on and on. And we have to notice it again and again and again and again. But every moment that we catch the wandering mind, the restless, wandering, habitual mind, is a moment of relief. We could call it a mini dukkha-free zone. But sometimes the mind wanders into uh, some of these hindrances that uh, Kamala spoke about earlier this evening. Some of these mental states that are just tormenting obsessions. You know, you get, you get caught up in some emotional drama, some reviewing some old relationship or fixing the present one or planning something, and the mind just gets obsessing, you know, out of anger or fear or frustration or, you know, attachment and expectation, and the mind just gets churning. And luckily, mindfulness comes to your rescue and notices it again. And you notice it, and you notice it, and you notice it, and the mind keeps obsessing. Just noticing it isn't enough to make it stop. The habit is too strong. And even though you notice it, you can sit wallowing in your obsessing for a good long time. We'd like to be able to let go. We can even tell ourselves, let go of this anger, let go of this desire, let go of this jealousy, let go of this frustration. Does it happen? <laughs> it just keeps going. It's got a mind of its own. You know, it just keeps obsessing. It takes something more than your intention to disentangle from that dukkha, from that craving, from that holding on. And this is mindfulness, the continuity of mindfulness. Only when mindfulness is very continuous are we able to put aside the obsessing of the hindrances. It has to be very continuous so that every time the mind resorts to irritation, anger, frustration, desire, every time it wants to go that way, you see it, you see it, you see it, you see it. And you arrest the habit of the mind before it gets established. In time, the mind is what we say, temporarily purified of the hindrances. Temporarily purified, as long as you keep that continuity of mindfulness going. And with that, gradually, there comes a momentum of mindfulness that is much more easeful, and you can just experience extended periods of time without any obsessing, without any hindrances. When the hindrances come to a temporary end, it is a great relief. We're not obsessing anymore. 
We're just being with the present moment as it unfolds. This too is a form of uh, dukkha-free experience. When we can sustain the mindfulness, keeping the hindrances at bay, gradually but definitely, the seven factors of enlightenment that Deborah spoke about a few nights ago get stronger, come into balance, and the experience of tranquility and energy and balance and the non-reactivity of the equanimous mind when the mind is really attuned to the middle way, attuned to the non-reactive relationship to whatever's arising. When the mind is in balance, it's not leaning, it's not pushing, it's not pulling, it's not preferring. It just sees this is the way it is and accepts it. This balance of mind is another experience of temporarily, partially, dukkha-free zone. So these, these experiences are within our reach. These, these are happening for at least brief moments all day long. Wandering mind comes to an end, periods of time when the hindrances aren't really obsessing, and Sometimes, maybe in the afternoon guided equanimity practice, or uh, for some of you during your vipassana practice, the mind is just at ease and balance, in a balanced relationship with everything. So we get a taste, we get a glimpse of what the Buddha is pointing to when he talks about the end of dukkha is possible. And it is these experiences that keep us coming back. You come to a retreat and you get these little tastes. You get these tastes of freedom of mind. The mind free of obsessing, free of entanglement, free of dukkha. And we want more of it. We just really want to see how far this practice goes in freeing the mind from dukkha. And there are additional uh, experiences to be discovered. The fourth way that we experience um, dukkha-free a zone, if you will, is when out of the balanced equanimous mind we begin to see deeply into and understand the nature of all experience. We're not just seeing the arising of physical and mental conditions. We're beginning to see more deeply that all experience, everything we experience, is impermanent. It arises due to conditions, it lasts for a brief moment, and then it comes to an end. Now, we know this up here in our head. You know everything changes, right? Sure. But we don't live it. We're still trying to create security and hold things in a stable, unchanging way. But through practice, we learn how to live with the fact of impermanence on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Then we're living 
with awareness in each moment that whatever it is that has arisen that is being known is impermanent. We know what it is, and we also know it's impermanent. When we know something is impermanent, we don't rely on it for happiness. We don't hold on to it hoping that it'll be permanent. The mind doesn't reach for what it knows isn't going to be there in the next moment. The mind doesn't have to let go. It never even reaches. And so the mind just settles back into just seeing the ever-changing flow of impermanent events and is quite happy not to reach for, grab hold of, grasp, and hold on to any of them. Through insight into impermanence, we realize the non-grasping mind. Second understanding, insightful understanding to come from mature vipassana practice when the mind is very equanimous is we begin to understand the truth of dukkha. And now, whatever it is we see, physical, mental, emotional, inner, outer, historical, present, future, whatever we see, we understand it to be dukkha. It is either painful in and of itself, or it is unstable, unreliable, subject to change, or it is oppressive in its incessant impinging on the sense doors. And we understand this, we realize this about every experience that arises. When the mind is seeing and understanding this characteristic in every moment, rather than being bummed out like, oh, bummer, this is dukkha, rather than being bummed out by it, the mind is relieved of grasping, of holding, of clinging, of looking for something to hold on to. And so again, the mind just settles back and lets it all go by. Experiencing it as it goes, as conditions appear, experience what's there, but understanding this is unreliable. Don't grasp, don't hold, don't cling. And so the mind is at ease. The mind really rests very, uh, unperturbed with what goes by. This too is a dukkha-free uh, experience. There's a third insight to be gained from Vipassana practice, and it's the insight into the impersonal nature of phenomena. Whatever arises in our experience arises due to conditions. This, this, and this come together, produce an experience, which we then see, taste, and if we don't understand that it is conditional, we may reach for it, pursue it, grasp it as something solid, reliable, with an essence, an inherent essence that we can own, or that we can rely on, for our happiness. But when we understand this is conditional, 
everything that we see is conditional. It arises due to conditions, and all of those conditions are also arising due to conditions. It's like a rainbow. You see a rainbow in the sky, and you think there's something there. It looks very substantial. It looks like there is something you could reach, put it in an envelope, and send it to a friend. But this appearance, this colorful appearance that we get so seduced by is just a mirage created out of conditions of moisture in the air, sunlight, the angle of viewing, and if those three conditions come together, colorful appearance, which we can get infatuated with, incited about, and attached to. And there's nothing there. There's nothing substantial to be gained from clinging or grasping or holding on to it. This is the truth of anatta, or it's the anatta, not self, impersonal, essenceless, characteristic of everything. Everything is just like that rainbow. A momentary, beautiful appearance due to conditions which are ever-changing. There's nothing inherently substantial, or there's no essence to it to be gained and held and relied on. When we understand this, because insight sees this is the way it is in every moment, when insight sees this is the way it is in every moment, the mind is not, you don't reach for a rainbow, and the mind won't reach for anything that it sees is just like that. And so the mind again relaxes lets go of whatever arises, and conditions still unfold. You know, conditions are still happening, and life goes on, full of experiences, and yet there's no misunderstanding. This is impersonal, conditioned phenomena just rolling on. Wow. When, they, when these insights into impermanence, into dukkha, into the essencelessness, or the not-self characteristic, or the impersonal conditional nature of phenomena, when these mature, the mind is just so at ease with just letting everything go by. And you know, the second noble truth is, you know, it is clinging, it is grasping that causes dukkha. When the mind isn't clinging, and the mind isn't grasping, and the mind isn't holding, it isn't yearning for anything, but it's experiencing everything. It is then possible for the mind to access the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is Nibbana. It is a reality to be realized by the mature, aware mind. When the mind lets go of the known, It's possible. It is what the Buddha called the, uh, the sublime. There are many words pointing to the experience of the unconditioned. The Buddha said, 
It is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is sublime. It is peaceful. It is beyond mere reasoning. It is subtle. Its characteristic is peace. Not just tranquility, certainly not bliss, not joy. It's peace. It is available. It is uh, accessible. If you practice, you can realize it. And the way to realize it is the Fourth Noble Truth. The Fourth Noble Truth is called the Path, or the Eightfold Noble Path, to realize the end of Dukkha, which is the end of suffering. It is essentially, you know, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right view, and right thought, or right intention. These eight practices, these eight skillful habits of mind, really, are what we're doing here. The three trainings of sila, which is taking the precepts, right speech or skillful speech, skillful actions, and in this case, skillful livelihood as being a good yogi, purifies our speech and behavior of transgressive defilements. We don't act out against others or to our own detriment. And just living in harmony with one another is the benefit. Purifying our mind through mindfulness, developing mindfulness, is purifying our mind temporarily of the hindrances. What the Kamala spoke about, when we, purif when we develop mindfulness and purify our mind of hindrances, then we enjoy the happiness of living secluded from obsession. Also a great relief. And through developing insight or vipassana, we purify our understanding of wrong assumptions. We then know the truth of dukkha. We know the fact of impermanence. We know the fact of the conditionality of phenomena because we've purified that understanding, lifted it from the mind through the practice of vipassana. And to the degree that we do that, the mind rests in peace. What we're doing here in all of our efforts in every moment of just trying to be mindful is fulfilling the Eightfold Path. This is the way, this is the path to be developed to realize the end of craving. And the end of craving is the end of dukkha. What more could we do in any one moment what more could we do to really see the truth, realize the truth, and act on it? This is the path that the Buddha taught for coming to know dukkha and the end of dukkha, to really access and to abide in peace.
And why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because he said, it is beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. The Four Noble Truths lead to direct knowledge, enlightenment, and Nibbana. So let's sit for a moment and let the words settle down. third Zen patriarch, in his Verses on the Faith Mind, put it like this. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. And when the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. So there's 45 minutes for uh, mindful movement, and then we'll uh, have another sitting at 9.15 for uh, choir practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.